morning, everyone. Uh, so, uh, my name's Albert. I'm the lead pastor of the Tapestry Church Network and delighted to be here and super duper excited because we get to continue on the sermon series of my favorite book in the Bible, which is the Gospel of Luke. That's right. And so, Jesus, who's the main character in this gospel, he was a storyteller. In fact, he was the world's greatest story. Give him a crowd of people listening intently, and he would tell them a story. Give him an argument, he'd give you a story. Ask him a question, he'd give you a story. And give him a real tricky, catchy question, and he'd give you a real tricky, catchy story. That in conveying his message to the world, Jesus could have just sat back and delivered one theological statement after the other, right? And he did kind of do that. Like, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at his amazing Sermon on the Mount. But... One of the primary ways in which Jesus taught was through narrative and was through story. He told stories about farming and fishing, of lost sheep and prodigal sons, and we call these stories parables. Now, we don't know exactly how many parables Jesus told, but 52 of them are recorded in Scripture, and today we look at probably the most well-known of these parables, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which only appears in the Gospel of Luke. And I know, I know. It's a parable that many of us know too well, right? Like the back of our hand. And for those of you that are new to church, in some kind of context, you kind of understand or know about this story. But here's the thing about good stories, is that every single time you reread or rehear a story, a new idea or a new theme or a new concept can jump out at us. And I pray that the same will happen today. New insight, new thinking, but perhaps more importantly, that it would lead to new action. So let's listen in on the parable. It's in Luke chapter 10. We're going to start things in verse 25, and it begins like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, or compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. So the context of the parable begins with an expert of law putting Jesus to the test. He's heard about this Jesus, and he wants to make sure that this upstart rabbi from Nazareth really knew what he was talking about. And so he asks Jesus the age-old question, what do I have to do in order to inherit eternal life? It's a question you and I still ask today, right? How do I get to heaven? Well, what is written in the law, Jesus asks, and the expert in the law gives the appropriate response. He cites the two greatest commandments in Scripture, love God 
and love your neighbor. Good answer, well done, end of discussion. Well, not really. Because the expert of the law doesn't stop there. He wants to push Jesus. He wants to put Jesus on the spot in order to get Jesus to say something that would be heretical. So he continues, who is my neighbor? Now, the question, by the way, does not come out of the blue. This is a huge topic of discussion among religious leaders at the time. This was huge. Who exactly is my neighbor? The person literally next door, the foreigner, the outsider? In fact, back then, almost everyone at the time agreed that the law should not include anyone outside the genealogical nation of Israel. That is, unbelieving Jews, anyone who was not Jewish was not considered to be a neighbor under this definition. The expert of the law, then, is basically trying to nail it into legal terms. He wants to know, he wants to know the fine print of how much he needs to do in order to be saved. In other words, he is not asking, who is my neighbor? Essentially, he is asking, who isn't my neighbor? Who isn't my neighbor? Who do I not have to love in order to still get to myself to heaven? That's a terrible question, right? And yet Jesus gives a fantastic response through the telling of a story. A story that begins with a man who is coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And this fact is really important. Why? Because the road to, from Jerusalem to Jericho is a famous one. Every Jew would have known this road, and they would have known of the dangers of traveling down this 17-mile road. It would be like if I said, a man drove from Vancouver to Whistler. Oh, well, we all know this road, right? It's named the Sea to Sky Highway for a reason. The nice road, the mountains, and everything. It's known to be one of the most beautiful roads in the entire country. And in the same way, the road to Jericho was known as the most unbeautiful road in that country. A road infested with robbers and thieves. In fact, in Jesus' time, this road was called, affectionately, the Way of Blood. The road was so dangerous that the, when the Romans first conquered Israel, the Emperor Pompey sent a legion of soldiers to go through the road to kill all the thieves and to clean up the road. It didn't work. It was still a dangerous road, right? Because of the zigzagginess, because of the drop in terrain, it was a road that you had to be careful on because thieves were hiding behind every nook and cranny and spot behind the rocks. So in the story, there's a man going down to Jericho, and then as soon as you say that, you almost know what's going to happen to him. Yep, he's going to get robbed, and he does. He gets robbed, and I think he kind of puts up a fight because that's why he gets beaten up, stripped of his clothes, and left to die on the road. But then we read that a priest happened to be going down the same road. But when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Well, why doesn't the priest stop? Well, maybe he doesn't stop because he's in too much of a rush. Or... He, but we read, not or, but we read that he didn't simply only just walk past him. We read that he actually walked as far away as possible as this man as possible. He walked on the other side of the road, steering away. Why? Well, it's because he doesn't know whether he's dead. Because as we read, he's a half-dead guy lying in the road. Well, what does a half-dead guy look like? The last time I checked, a half-dead guy looks a lot like a fully dead guy. <laughs> And so maybe he doesn't stop because he is a priest. And according to the law, a priest cannot come closer than six feet to a dead man without being spiritually defiled. He would then have been labeled unclean. 
and would have to go through a purification ritual that would last over a week. So can you imagine the embarrassment? He's just been in Jerusalem. He's just did his two-week rotation working at the temple, and now he's going home to Jericho because that's where a lot of priests happened to live during that time. And now he's got to go back. He's got to turn around. He's got to go back to Jerusalem where he was. And worse yet, he's got to sit in the back of the temple with all the unclean people. How embarrassing. So no way he doesn't do that. No way. The shame of it, no wonder he doesn't stop. But there's more. He also doesn't stop because of economic reasons. He's just finished his two-week rotation. He's been at the temple, and he would have gotten paid for his work. But back then, you didn't get paid by check or cash, remember? It was a barter system back then. So he would have gotten paid by supplies and food. So who knows? He's got some meat on him. He's got some dried goods. He's got some wine. He's got some salt, which is really expensive. I mean, that was going to feed his family. That was payment for his work. But if he walked closer than the six feet allowed to this dead man, not only would he be deemed unclean, but so would all his food. And so he'd have to throw it all away. No wonder then. For both social and economic reasons, he steered away from the man as far as possible. So friends, what stops us from being a good neighbor? Social reasons? It's too embarrassing. It's beneath me. I can't do that. Or economic reasons? I don't want to give my hard-earned money away. Or both. The story continues. Someone else, a Levite, comes to the place and sees him, but passed by on the other side. Now, why doesn't the Levites stop? To a certain degree, the same reason why the priests didn't stop, but the Levites weren't bound by the law as much as the priests. Levites also served at the temple, but were in a lower status than the priests. Now, we read that the Levite, though, had already defiled himself because we read that he's already come to the place where the man was. So he's actually already crossed the six-feet line. He's walked up to this half-dead guy in the ditch. He may have even seen him breathing, maybe stirring, And yet he does not stop. He just walks on by. Why? Well, maybe he was afraid of the robbers who still might be around, right? This guy hasn't died yet, so he might have just gotten beaten up, so they might still be around. Or maybe he thought the guy in the ditch was just playing dead, right? And as soon as he stopped, all his friends would come out of the rocks and pounce on him and beat him. So he doesn't want to take the chance. I mean, to stop would be crazy. It would be risk-taking, and it would put him in great jeopardy. Maybe. But my hypothesis is this. I think it's the example set by the highest-ranking priest ahead of him that deters him the most. And what do I mean by this? Well, if you're going on a treacherous road, you make sure you're traveling as close to the next guy as possible. It's like driving in the highway in the middle of the night, right? You never want to be all alone, and it's always nice to know you're not out there by yourself, and you can follow this red kind of taillights, you know, ahead of you, right? So you kind of know where you're going. The Levite, then, was probably following the priest, It's only a 17-mile road anyways, and then saw what the priest did, or in this case, did not do. And so he's probably thinking to himself, well, if the priest didn't do anything, why should I do anything? It's what sociologists call the bystander effect. So friends, what stops us from being a good neighbor? Maybe we think, oh, I don't need to help. Someone else would just help. I don't need to get involved. Or maybe we don't help because we don't want to put ourselves in risk or danger. You never know what might happen. I can't help. What stops us from being a good neighbor? The Pharisee doesn't stop. The Levite doesn't stop. Two holy and esteemed men in Israel don't bother to help this man in the ditch. Those who should have helped didn't. So the moral of the story, never trust a pastor. (laughs) 
So if not, who is the hero? Who's the hero that's going to save them? Right? I mean, the lawyer who Jesus is telling the story might be even thinking, maybe he's going to talk about me. Maybe he's going to talk about us lawyers. Because there was this hierarchy in religious talk back then. It was the priests, then the Levites, and then the lawyers. And so Jesus has just said, priest, Levite, they didn't do it. Maybe it's me. Maybe a lawyer is going to come save the day. I'm going to be the hero. And then Jesus does that totally unexpected. He swears. He says a foul term next because he says, but a Samaritan came to him. You know, we have sanctified the word Samaritan. It's so nice to be a good Samaritan. Oh, you're such a good Samaritan. And everyone's like, oh, I feel so good about myself. But back then, it's not a compliment. It's at least a swear word or a derogatory slur. A Samaritan was a half-blood, not truly Jewish, and the centuries of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years. They did not like each other, and it's still reflected in some ways, tragically, in the conflict between Israel and Palestine today. Currently, there are only 900 ethnic Samaritans left in the world. That's it, 900. And even though they aren't involved in the current conflict because they kind of live, some in the West Bank, but most of them kind of south of Tel Aviv, they aren't directly involved in the conflict. But you get the idea of generational hatred that can exist in that area. What's similar very much to what the current conflict intention is between Israeli and Palestinian. And it is this Samaritan, of all people, in helping out this man that Jesus picks as being morally superior to the religious elite of Israel. So you can just imagine that Israel seething. He is boiling mad because it's one thing for a Jew to help out a Jew. And it's one other thing for a Jew to help out a Samaritan, although that would never happen because if a Jew touched a Samaritan, they would be deemed unclean, so we try to stay away as much as possible. But to actually consider that a Samaritan would help out a Jew, Jesus, you've gone too far. How dare you suggest that a Samaritan would be more righteous than me? And so the priest goes down the road, the Levite comes to the place, but it is the Samaritan who comes to the man. The Samaritan comes to the man and does three things. He cleans the wounds with oil, he disinfects him with wine, and he then bandages them up, and then he puts him on his donkey and puts him to, takes him to safety in the Holiday Inn, and he goes so far as to pay for his recovery. He gives the innkeeper two denarii, which according to scholars would pretty much almost be equivalent to two months' worth of accommodations. This is the kind of neighborliness that Jesus is talking about. It is generous, it is kind, and it is over-the-top extravagant. Jesus is such a master storyteller. The story comes full circle, the man is restored, and thanks to the grace and compassion of the Samaritan, it's a great story, right? We love this story. But I actually don't think we truly come to understand this story until we actually ask ourselves, who are we in this story? Who are we? Because I think most of us would kind of understand the story of saying, oh, I identify with being the good Samaritan, right? I want to be the guy that helps. I want to be the hero of the story. That's who we want to be. And some of us may realize, no, we're like the priest and the Levite. We're pretty much the ones that sometimes walk right on by and don't help those who need it. But you got to remember, Jesus is telling the story to a Jewish lawyer. Like, if I were to tell you a story, okay, there was a guy or a girl that gets in their car and drives up on the seat of sky to Whistler, you identify yourself as being who? The person who's in the car driving up to Whistler. So actually, in hearing this story, we have to actually hear it like the lawyer might have first heard it, that identifying themselves with the man on the road. 
There once was a man who went up to Jericho from Jerusalem. So you are the man then who gets robbed. You have been beaten up, you're half half dead, you've stripped off your clothes, you're lying on the ground, you're bleeding to death, and you are desperate, desperate for help. So imagine what that would feel like. You're lying on the ground, you are half dead, you are bleeding out, and you are desperate, desperate for help. But then you see a priest coming down the road, and it's someone you might know, maybe it's your pastor, maybe it's me. Oh, Albert, it's going to save me. But I don't recognize you because you're disguised by the blood on your face. You don't have any clothes on, so how am I supposed to know who you are? I have no idea, and I have to follow the rules. There are rules. I cannot, he's not my neighbor. I can't do anything. There are rules to be kept, and so I walk on by. I don't stop to help. But then a Levite comes down the road, and it's an elder of the church, and they were all here at the 9 o'clock right? Any elders here? Michael Koo, elder emeritus, I'm picking on you. (laughs) Michael's coming down the road. He's an elder of the church. He can help. And you're so excited, and yet, no. He follows my lead. He has to keep the law, and he just walks on by. And now you're desperate. Two people you know don't bother to stop you because of the law. You are dying you need help, you squint your eyes, and then all of a sudden you begin to see, oh, someone's coming to save me, oh, thank you. But then you look at him and you can tell by his clothes and the way he acts, oh no, it's an enemy, it's a Samaritan. He can't touch me because if he does, then he's, I'm unclean. He can't touch me. And then you realize, oh, but if he doesn't break the rules, I'm dead. I have to let him help me. And right there and then, Jesus slams him. Jesus takes a bad question, a selfish, legalistic, picky, hair-splitting question, and he nails him on it. Don't you Pharisees and lawyers get it? Your laws don't save anyone. If we did things according to a laundry list separating out who is our neighbor and who isn't a neighbor, we'd be all left to die on the side of the road in the ditch. Because it's not the law we are to live by. It is grace, 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 and more grace. Friends, we are saved by grace. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. And like the guy who's lying in the road, we cannot save ourselves. That God came down and in His grace and at great cost saved us from death. It's only when we experience God's amazing grace, when we realize how Jesus has gently picked us up from the side of the road, taken care for us, and extravagantly loved us, that we fully begin to understand what grace is about. And having experienced God's good grace, we can show grace to others. Having been loved, we can thus love. Having experienced God's grace, it will begin to change. It has to begin to change how we live and what we do and how we act. So maybe we're not a good neighbor because we actually fully haven't understood God's grace in our lives. Because having shown grace, we should be able to show grace easily because we know what it feels like to be saved at great cost. And maybe we aren't neighborly because we don't fully understand God's grace in our own lives. The original question of who is my neighbor is the wrong question. The question we should be asking is, am I a neighbor? Am I a good neighbor? Neighbor, do I show love and grace and kindness to the people that God has put in my path? 
For Jesus being a good neighbor is something you feel and do. That Jesus ends this parable with a commandment. Jesus says to the expert of the law, which of these proved to be a neighbor? And swallowing hard, the expert of the law can't even say the word Samaritan, and so he can only say, the one who showed mercy. And nevertheless, Jesus looks at him and says, go and do likewise. The point of the parable is the very last thing. Go and do. Stop keeping score. Don't keep up rules. Don't think about your bare minimum you need to do. Just go and do and show mercy and love and grace to the people around you. So friends, are you a neighbor? Do we show love and grace to those who happen to walk, we happen to walk along with, along the same journey, to those who might need help, and to even those that are physically in proximity next to you? And I think herein lies the problem. I think we here in the 21st century, good Canadians who don't disagree about anything, smile, we're so tolerant, that we actually have come to misunderstand the term neighbor. That to be a good neighbor has become this nebulous catch-all term to include everything and everyone, right? I mean, in Jesus' day, because of what was taught by the religious leaders, Jesus needed to explain, no, your neighbor was everyone, not just your Jewish brothers and sisters, it was those that were your enemy, those you didn't get along with, everyone was your neighbor. There's no fine print. But I find these days we've actually lost what it means to be a neighbor. Everything is about being a neighbor. This day, this time, these days, being a good neighbor means nothing more, I think, than being nice and tolerant. The smile. Donate some money and tip well. Right? What does it mean to be a good neighbor? It's so nebulous. But what about your actual neighbor? I feel more and more convicted about this. Because how can we even talk about loving our neighbor in a generic, worldly sense when we don't even know the name of the specific person who lives next to you? John Mark Comer puts it this way, and I love this little quote he says in his sermon. He writes, next slide. What if, when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he meant your actual neighbor? What if your neighbor is more than your actual neighbor, but it's not less? What if first century Jews needed to hear that your neighbor wasn't the person next door to you, it's the Samaritan, it's your enemies? And what if 21st century followers of Jesus, that's us, need to hear that your neighbor is not just him or her out there, it's your neighbor neighbor, the person in the apartment next to you, the condo next to you, the person living across the hall in your dorm, across, across the street in your neighborhood? Because we can talk all about what we want about being a good neighbor, but maybe, maybe to live out Jesus' command to go and do likewise actually has to begin in small ways and yet in important ways to the actual people who live next door to you. You know, one of the things I've tried in the last 15 years since moving to Vancouver is to be a good neighbor, especially in this city, because as you know, Vancouver may seem friendly, but it isn't. There's an epidemic problem of loneliness here in this city. People live in closed doors, they live behind gates. It is hard to make connections in this city. And so I've wanted to be a good neighbor. And in the last little while, I've had neighbors over for dinner, I've helped out in various ways, I've shoveled their walk, I've gotten their mail, I've taken out their garbage. It's a real value to me, to show the love of Jesus through good neighboring. I love that word, neighboring. So two years ago, Frida and I moved into our new place. 
and we have these great ideas about being a good neighbor. We're going to invite some of our neighbors over for dinner. We're going to do a block party. We're going to get a keg outside of the steps. We're just going to sit around. People are going to come. They're going to stop for a drink. It's going to be like, it's going to be fantastic. And I kind of know all the names of the, everyone who lives around me. I wave and say hi to them. But have we ever done anything? Uh, no. Regrettably, my next door unchristian neighbor has been more of a neighbor to us than we have to them. When we moved in, they knocked on the door and they came and they gave us this great kind of Chinese porcelain tea set and welcome to the neighborhood. They happened to own a restaurant here in Richmond and so they invited us over. It was great. They made all this food, a couple of bottles of wine. They were so generous. It was this fantastic gift. It was wonderful. And unfortunately, they just moved away. I was their neighbor for two and a half years and I not once invited them over for dinner. In two and a half years, I did nothing to show being a good neighbor, the love of Christ to my person who lives and their family next door to me. I haven't done anything. And I feel like the priest in this story, too busy, too focused on work and duty and money, I haven't at all been a good neighbor. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, am I a neighbor? Am I a neighbor, neighbor, neighboring to those that live around me? So, what are the names of your neighbors? Maybe that's a place to start. And maybe it's not your neighbor, but I know that there is probably someone that you bump into all the time at work or at school or whatever, that maybe Jesus is calling you, convicting you. What does it mean to walk alongside of them? and to provide love and grace and mercy to them in Christ. Who might that person be? Who is God putting you in your path? And then, friends, go and do. Go and do and be a good neighbor. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, there are so many ways of which we make excuses to not be a good neighbor. And we repent of those things, whether it be social reasons or economic ones, whether it's a bystander effect or we don't want to take the risk, or maybe we don't actually even know and experience your goodness and grace enough to be able to show grace to others. Whatever that might be, God, we repent of it and we ask for your Spirit to use us, to change us, to stir in us a willingness and a desire and a passion and a joy to love our neighbors, to love our friends, to love those next to us, left and right and across the street. May we proclaim the name of Jesus, the one we follow in how we love our neighbor and the world. In Christ's name I pray, amen.